0: Well, thank you guys for your patience as we get started uh, this morning with so many different things happening this fall semester. It's all important. We want you to know about it. So uh, thanks for bearing with us as we work through those things. Um, this morning, we're going to begin a new series that we'll walk through together this fall as we look at the book of Second Peter. As we get started, I want to give you a little bit of insight as to why we are doing this series and for that matter, why we do any series here at Melanie Park Church. The main thing I want you to know is that when we start something new, it's based on the conviction that this is where God wants us to go. It is our response to what we see as God's initiative or His intention for this body of believers at this point in time. And that conviction is based upon the the biblical understanding of God calling individual people to a specific body to carry out a unique purpose within that body of believers. That's why we don't follow any certain curriculum on a Sunday morning like this. Uh, that's why we don't try to do a lot of things that other churches may be doing, because we're asking ourselves, what does God want of us? And to be honest with you, I pray that every church is asking that very same question. You see, Second Peter has a message that I believe we cannot afford to miss. As you will notice all throughout our study here in the fall, the context within which Peter writes this letter in many ways is very much like our own. His message, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is intended to be a wake-up call for the church. It's a call to spiritual growth and a culture of compromise. And for that reason, I think it is a very relevant topic in our world today. Peter is beginning to see the ripple effects of this compromise as it has started to to enter the early church. And he's warning Christians about the destruction in their lives when they choose not to stand in the truth. It's kind of like a tsunami effect. Tsunamis are created by massive earthquakes miles underneath the ocean surface on the ocean floor. And despite their magnitude underwater, you only, if anything, get a tremor on land. In deep water, the waves created by these earthquakes can travel up to 500 miles an hour underwater. That's as fast as the jetliner taking you from here to Dallas when you go on an airplane. But if you're on the surface, you never see it. It's calm and peaceful. You see, tsunamis are not just one big tidal wave, but instead, it's a series of waves. They're called, it's called a wave train. And this wave train begins to form as these massive waves start to reach the surface. This picture shows you what one of those, Simple wave trains, looks like. If you'll notice, the the water in front of the waves is almost crystal clear calm, isn't it? And then all of a sudden, you begin to see these seemingly insignificant waves that follow behind. And because of their gradual magnitude of the disturbance, the warning signs for tsunamis are often ignored. But beneath these subtle changes is a destructive beast. It's a force to be reckoned with. And if we play in the midst of this kind of danger, someone's going to get hurt. What strikes me about this photo is if you look closely, on a lot of the faces, there are smiles like this is fun. But if you look even closer, this gentleman here on the left with a little girl on his shoulders is petrified because he understands that what lurks behind them is not a laughing matter. Because there's somebody in his care that he loves, I'm sure, and there's a lot at stake, too much at stake. This is something that's gone wrong. Because when you look at the effect of tsunamis, you can see that the destruction is pervasive. And that's not a laughing matter. You see, Peter is telling the church, who is already beginning to see the ripple effects of persecution and false teaching. He says to them, wake up, there's way too much at stake here. There is a wave of destruction that is headed to your life if you don't take the warning signs seriously and establish a strong stand in the truth. you See, we, you and I, cannot afford to turn a blind eye to the seemingly insignificant waves that are hitting the shore of our society. The church in America, the church here in in Lubbock, Texas, needs a wake-up call, just like the early church that Peter wrote this letter to. There's too much at stake. The light of our message is a beacon of hope and must not be veiled behind the shadow of compromise. Just look around you. Take a look at the faces that are around you and tell yourself, remind yourself, there's too much at stake here. We need to watch the warning signs and pay attention to the message, especially the one we will look at together this fall. It's that important. Let me pray for our time together. God, as we begin looking at what I believe to be a very relevant significant study together in second peter i pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we prayed together as a staff this morning it is so easy in our world to live within our society and in some ways to become dull to the reality of things that are happening around us that are of eternal significance so i pray father that the truth of your word would open our eyes to see things that maybe we're missing and to be awakened as a church of jesus christ to the call that you have given us to be a light to the world and may that light never be hidden behind the veil of compromise give us that sight this morning we pray this in your name amen well i want to take a minute as we get started to reintroduce you to the author of this letter Peter was one of the first disciples called by Jesus. We remember that account in Mark's gospel as he and his brother Andrew were out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They weren't fishing because they wanted to. They were fishing because they had to. It was their job. Mark's gospel tells us that after meeting these two brothers for the first time, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The text says that they immediately left their nets and followed him. This is amazing to me that they left their jobs, their livelihood, to follow a stranger. But as we've gotten to know Peter through the Gospels, we know that this is just the way he works. He's kind of compulsive like that, isn't he, at times. Because as we recall, we remember that he was the first one to step out of the boat and actually walk on water. He was the first one to answer Jesus' question and declare with conviction, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he was the first in line and only one of three disciples who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. He, he was bold in his faith and, and a leader among the disciples. But he wasn't perfect. He also denied the Messiah, he was so quick to follow in order to preserve his own life. He was the first to separate himself from the common Christians in order to preserve his reputation as a good Jewish man. Bottom line, he was just a man, just like you and I, who was learning to follow Jesus. There were times that he got it right, but there were times that That he failed miserably. But one thing for sure, as you examine the life of Peter, you will recognize that he was always in the game. He was not one to watch from the sidelines. He learned to follow Christ by living the life of a disciple. And as time went on, his faith and character became the rock upon which the church was built. As you read Acts, you will see for yourselves how it was Peter and his bold proclamation at Pentecost that started the avalanche of witnesses that would then go out and spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the othermost parts of the world. It was Peter's declaration of our freedom in Christ that swung the doors wide open for both Jew and Gentile to come to know the forgiveness from sin through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, those erratic emotions that we often attribute to Peter had settled into a steady resolve and an uncompromising message of hope in Jesus Christ. And now, after almost 40 years of following Christ, a lifetime of of preaching to and, and pastoring the people of God, Peter knew that his time on earth was coming to a close when he puts pen to paper and writes this second letter of peter he has a strong conviction that these will be his final words and so under the inspiration of the holy spirit he chooses his words carefully as he writes what he believes to be a farewell message the waves of change are beginning to surface and Peter is writing to equip the church for what is to come. You see, up to this point, the, the Roman Empire had adopted a policy of religious tolerance. As long as you paid your taxes and gave homage to the emperor, you could basically do whatever you wanted to do. The Roman authorities saw Christians or Christianity as just another sect Of the Jews. And so all that religious liberty that they gave to the Jewish community to practice their religion was also given likewise to the Christians. And the Jews hated this connection because Christians disturbed their peace at all costs philosophy. You see, by and large, Jews were not interested in new converts or proclaiming a message to other people for the most part, they isolated themselves from society and they did whatever they could do to keep themselves and their private religious duty to themselves. But these Christians, these Christians were different. Good grief. They were talking about this Jesus all the time, everywhere they went. Unlike the Jews, they had a story to tell, And they were doing all they could to spread the message of hope in Jesus Christ to everyone they encountered. Their message was causing a stir. And not only that, so was their lifestyle. You see, in Roman society, conformity was the key to a trouble-free life. But Christians didn't always bow to the social norm. You see, because in Roman society, that society developed into an entertainment society. For example, each time that they would make a sacrifice to one of their pagan gods, they would gather everybody together after the sacrifice for a big party in that temple court. It was a big deal. Everybody came to this. It was a big time. Everyone was there, except for the Christians. Sometimes that celebration in the courtyard was like a tailgate party before the big game. The big game for the Romans was the gladiators. Men, usually criminals or slaves, who fought to the death against each other or other wild beasts. It was a major form of entertainment, and thousands of people would fill huge arenas, much like our football stadiums, to watch this bloodthirsty battle. Everyone was there except for the Christians. And Christian masons would not build temples to pagan gods. Christian tailors refused to to make robes for heathen priests. In many ways, as you were a fully committed follower of Christ, you were in most cases divorced from most of the society and economic life of that time. And when you don't fall in line, you begin to stand out. And Christians increasingly became abhorred for their nonconformist view of life. And waves of persecution began to build. At the time when Peter writes this letter, it's about the mid to late 60s. Jesus had been crucified for almost 40 years now. And, and Peter finds himself in Rome in the middle of this melee. Nero was the Roman emperor, and the empire under his watch was spinning out of control. We know that a huge fire breaks out, and it burns in Rome for six days and six nights, destroying much of the city. The rumor is that uh, that Nero set the fire himself in order to make way for a temple to be built in his honor. But it got out of hand. And so in order to turn the attention from himself and the hatred that the people would have for him, he blamed those non-compliant Christians. And that's when literally all hell broke loose. The first major persecution of Christians began to take place. And it was awful. People were crucified and burned at the stake Christians soon became the sport of those gladiator games. They were sewn up in animal skins and then set out to see wild beasts devour them alive. Women were dragged behind wild bulls while these huge stadiums of people watched it as a form of entertainment. It was in this context that Peter writes his letter. He's certain as a noted apostle and believer in Jesus Christ, that his death was imminent. Tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down by his own request, so as not to be equated with the Savior he had given his life to serve. And even though I'm sure that this persecution was alarming to him, as you read his letter and look closely, you will see it was not his primary concern. Although Peter recognized the the painful reality of what was happening outside the church, what concerned Peter the most is what was happening inside the church. As you might imagine, with such fierce opposition from the church, excuse me, from the culture, it, it was easy and tempting to begin to loosen your grip on those Christian convictions that you once held so firmly. Oh, maybe we're, we're being old-fashioned, and we just need to loosen up a little bit. I mean, if we start to take this stuff too seriously, we're going to get killed, literally. Maybe we should do just as the Romans do. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. And it's at this point that the enemy begins to get a foothold in the door of the church, and it's left wide open for false teachers. And like cockroaches, they begin to infiltrate the church. Their opposition from this society of tolerance toward an intolerant church only gave weight to their message. They said, look, you can't hold on to those outdated attitudes. We've moved past all that. After all, God has called us to be free, so live life. Loosen up. Have a little fun. We know from Peter's letter that these false teachers were influential. They had devoted uh, had a devoted following of of disciples who preached this message and they professed to be Christians. They were young radicals trying to clear the traditional nonsense out of the church. They proclaimed to, to set Christianity free from the chains of unnecessary religious restrictions that were embarrassing to the church and in fact really unnecessary. The foundation of their argument was the teaching that judgment was just a a manipulative way to get people to behave better. It it was a fear tactic and an unnecessary one at that. They taught that Jesus wasn't coming back because he had already come. Everybody knew that. And, And And not only that, he had come and accomplished everything that needed to be done. They argued that the life of Jesus introduced the grace of God, which ultimately canceled out any future judgment of God. And so don't feel guilty about enjoying the pleasures of life. They would tell you, Jesus wants you to be happy, so just do what makes you happy. Jude writes a letter at the same time as Second Peter, and I believe describes these same false teachers. This is what he says. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. As we will see, Peter will write of these same teachers and tell us that they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. They are promoting the idea that grace gives you the liberty to do what you want and forgiveness gives you the freedom to indulge in those desires. You know, I, as I look at this, don't know that they were outwardly promoting a a licentious lifestyle. I I think their tactics were more subtle. What I do believe they did is minimize the significance of sin. And they took it so lightly that they gave permission to pursue immorality without penalty. (laughs) It's just not that big of a deal, was their mantra. It was a perfect storm, and the wave train began to come. Listen to the progression of wave after wave. A culture of tolerance becomes increasingly intolerant of nonconformist Christianity. This is followed by a persecution that puts pressure on the Christian community, inviting them to compromise in their convictions in order to protect their life. False teachers then seized the opportunity to call on the church to loosen its grip on the core doctrines of their faith. The grace of God was then used to overrule the judgment of God, which allowed the church to blend in to the protection of a tolerant society. And then the tsunami. The church loses its distinction. The message of the gospel is silenced. And the name of Christ is no longer exalted in the lives of his people. As Tom might suggest, we lose our vision and become blind to the cause of Christ. Now you tell me. Does Second Peter have any relevance in our society today? You need to answer that with a resounding yes. For that reason, let's commit ourselves to closely examining and listening to Peter's words together. There's too much at stake here. There's a message that we've been called to give, and we cannot hide it under a veil of compromise. Too much at stake. I was going to begin this morning looking at the first couple of verses, but I'm going to save that because I just want you to think about what we've talked about this morning as we introduce Peter's letter. What I want you to hear is that this book of the Bible written thousands of years ago is completely relevant to the world in which we live today. I think sometimes we detach ourselves from this because this was then and, and that was then and this is now. Well, what I'm suggesting to you is this is now. And we need to pay attention to what Peter's message is because I think it has incredible relevance to our lives today as Christians in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, as we begin, set our hearts to be fertile ground for the seed of your truth to be planted so that it may grow to give us an appreciation and an understanding of the life that we have in you. Father, if there are things in our lives, and I pray this for myself as well, that have been clouded by the compromise of our society, and a compromise that I believe has even entered into the church, that you would reveal that to us. That your truth would expose lies. That your word would lead us to an understanding of what is important for us to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Father, remind us there's too much at stake. I don't know when the end is, but one thing I do know is today is one day closer than yesterday because the time is set and you are coming back. And so, Father, when we look at this letter and are reminded by Peter to that fact that we would not forsake our own gathering together as the habit of some is, but... We would consider how to encourage each other towards love and good deeds. That we would renew our faithful commitment to an uncompromising proclamation of faith alone in Christ alone. Father, thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. And we look forward to what you have in store. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.